0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, just a bit of a review from last week. In the wild, wonderful world of grammar, we uh, talked about uh, the importance of grammar in Scripture and, and looking at the grammar, both Old and New Testament, and uh, in particular, taking the method that we're dealing with here, observation, interpretation, and application, and applying it to what Dr. Zuck in his book calls the grammatical gap, there is a gap because you're talking about different languages and also different languages that are separated by centuries and centuries. So there's going to be uh, some, some gaps we need to uh, close, but uh, we have very good uh, tools to do that with, and so it's uh, something that uh, I think we can do with great confidence. We also have a God who is sovereign over these things, who has made sure that we have, uh, uh, have the Scriptures, that the not only did he, uh, by his Spirit, make sure the Scriptures were put down as he wanted, he also superintended their transmission down through the centuries, okay? The sovereignty of God in, involved in that. And, from our perspective also, the, um, the illumination of us, okay? Um and how the he also helps us understand scripture. So um, there was um we worked through some of these various issues and um the literal method and the meaning from grammar, the literal method and the words and the history of words and how words can change through history and through time. And we want to make sure we're looking at the uh way that the writer or speaker understood that word as he used it when he used it. So that's pretty important, even though we we look at them the origins of words through history and how they're even used in in some extra biblical literature, we want to make sure we understand the way that writer at that point in time is using that word. So that was a pretty important point. And uh then we talked a little bit about the literal method and morphology or the way that words are spelled, the you know, the jargon term, there's always jargon in all these things, inflection or spelling. And, um, oh, here we go. Here's uh, just an illustration of that, okay, from uh, John chapter 4. Why don't you turn your Bibles to John chapter 4, because we're going to be looking at that for a couple of a couple of reasons. So I thought, I just, since I was in John 4 anyway, for part of this, I would just illustrate the way that morphology can play a part in... Um, Having how we interpret Scripture. The word to say in John 4, and this is just in the first 42 verses, the dictionary or lexical form is the first person singular, lego, to say. So that's actually, you could also understand that to be I say. Okay, But just in John 4, 1 through 42, these are all the different ways that word can appear. Now, each one of those looks different, they are different, um, and so from each one of those different spellings or forms, uh, you can learn something, okay? I'm not going to go through all of these, but these are all the different ways it appears. The top one there, lege, it occurs 12 times, and then you can see six times for the other one. I think I counted up 30 times just in these first 42 verses. That's all based on that one word, legay, to say, Okay. There's conversation going on back and forth between our Lord and the woman at the well. Uh, she said, he said, that type of thing. And then when you get clear down to the bottom, uh, I think that's verse 35. And Jesus actually says, I say to you, he's talking to his disciples. He does use the one time in that passage, the, the first person singular, okay, which is the dictionary form. So that's it down there. These other ones, all um, as you pick the words apart parsing as verbs you parse the verbs then you're going to categorize them or they are categorized according to person number tense mood and voice some would add one or one more maybe but uh, those are the five basic ways that you would parse these words and um, it they all say something different depending on how they're how they're used by the author and um, that's just an illustration of just in that passage, how many different ways that word can be spelled, or the root word can be used and spelled, all these different spellings have different meanings, okay so highly inflected the Greek language is you have uh, oftentimes in in the English text, you will have a single word, a single form, but it it could represent um, a a two different spellings which would represent two different meanings, okay? And uh, pretty common even in uh, uh, your English Bibles to have uh, even even the uh, number, okay, plural versus singular. Okay? There's lots of examples of that. So this is just an illustration I thought I'd, I'd uh, show you as to what, what we uh, mean when we talk about morphology or how words are spelled. And it can get, obviously it can get a little technical, But um, it's how precise the Scripture is to communicate its meaning by even little small changes in word meaning uh, as far as verbs. And that's just verbs. The noun family has um, its own set of ways you would look at those. Okay, any thoughts or questions you might have on that? Okay, well, um, on page 23... I just wanted to also give you an example of um, what are what is commonly called syntactic or syntactic grammatical parallels. Okay, and this is from First John five one, and what I did, I gave you um, I gave you an illustration there of when we're when we're taking this, and so we're moving sort of beyond the um, interpretation into more what it's called exegesis, taking these tools and uh, applying them to the text. And so I just picked 1 John 5.1 because it's a pretty good example of uh, being able to look at the text and find syntactic grammatical parallels in order to validate our exegesis of a text, okay? So in 1 John 5.1, and I just gave you these various English translations at the top, and um, I have these set up on a little tool here. It's really handy. I really like it. Uh, it gives you uh, seven slots, and you can put different texts in there that you want. Uh, the way I have it set up, I have it set up with a for the New Testament a basic Greek text on on one slot, and then um, the first one I have is the King James English translation. So I want to go back in time. I want to start back with an early translation into English and kind of do my own little diachronic study. And that's kind of handy because they give you the King James, but they also give you the new King James right next to it. And you can toggle between them. So these other six slots, you can actually set them up with, with eight English translations. And so that's the first one there on the top, King James, from 1 John 5.1. It says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then I come in to uh, the 19th century, that YLT there, that's Young's Literal Translation. Uh, Professor Young was a, a, a linguist and a, 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 a grammarian at, of all places, University of Chicago back in 1862. It's interesting, you go back to some of these universities that have long since abandoned anything remotely resembling Orthodox Christianity, and you can find some really high uh, quality scholarship back there, but you got to go back about 150 years or so. But in 1862, he produced this, what became called Young's Literal Translation. It's just really literal. It's not even almost a translation, but it's it's so transparent because of that. He wasn't real interested in having a smooth um, English um, translation. He just wanted to have a very accurate uh, representation of the of the of the words of the text and of course it's based on pretty much the king james background there so he says everyone who is believing that jesus is the christ of god he hath been begotten <clears throat> okay and then coming on into the uh, 20th century um I actually have this set up with with one that's in the late 19th century but uh for our purposes here Just coming in, there's the New American Standard. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then um, I don't think it's called the Holmans anymore. I think it's just called now. It's just called the Christian Standard Bible. That was 2017. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And then uh, the ESV 2016. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And then very recently, uh, 2021, the LSB, which is a reworking of the New American Standard. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So you can see that with all these English translations, they're pretty close, but they're somewhat different. So I just wanted to use this illustration to point out the difference between what's the basic historic Arminian position, okay, as compared to what we would maybe call the historic reform position, okay? So I picked some of these illustrations because they uh, they usually involve some sort of historic uh, theological wrangling back and forth, arm wrestling, okay? But the basic Arminian position, and I'm not trying to characterize that, but that's sort of the, the overall basic position. In other words, you can find people that probably vary with both of these. But the basic Arminian position, believing that Jesus is the Christ, Is antecedent to or precedes and produces or results in being born again. Okay. Now, this is this area of study is typically called the Ordo Salutis um, or the Order of Salvation. You know, you got to have Latin terms for everything, right? Um, And so, what comes first? That's pretty much the way the argument goes. But just as a reminder, Quite often in the Bible, we want to see something in a chronological order, you know, first this, then this, then this. But very often, Scripture presents it more in a logical order instead of chronological. So you got to be careful. You could be be arm-wrestling about the timing of something, but maybe the text itself is more giving you simply the logical order. So that's just a little caveat as far as that goes. But that's the basic historic Arminian position. And then the Reformed, and I'm just simply calling it scriptural position, regeneration, being born of God, is antecedent to or precedes and produces or results in believing that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, regeneration precedes belief. Okay? And so there's the the argument for the arm wrestling back and forth through the years. Now, um, we take... First John 5, 1 John 5:1. We look at it, and here it is. But we've also, I've also gone out and found these syntactical, grammatical parallels, and I've highlighted the first part and the second part there, so you can see they are parallel. It uses that same word on the right there, genetai. That's the third third person singular perfect passive indicative of genao to bear or to give birth. Okay, that uh, word there, when you parse it, is a perfect passive. And then over on the left there, that one that's underlined, Pistuon, that's a participle. It's a present active participle of Pistuo, to believe. And it says, all the believing that Jesus is the Christ from the God have been born. Very typically, um, the word God will have the article. It sounds a little odd. It doesn't get usually translated because it doesn't sound quite right in our language. But uh, the word theos is the word for God. It's a noun in a category of nouns, a family of nouns called monadic nouns, nouns of which there's only one, like heaven, God, even the word Satan, Satanas, commonly will have the, the article with it. It'll say the Satan, even though it doesn't get translated. So that's one of the things that's just kind of a characteristic of the language. Uh, 85% of monadic nouns will have the article just by numbers, okay? So it It looks odd. But that's just kind of the way the language works. So then we go out and we find these parallels. If, if truly regeneration precedes belief, okay? Now, I can I can say that. I can come up, say that from First John 5, 1, and somebody else might say, like an Arminian fellow might say, wait a second now, you just made up all that geeky Greeky stuff just to make that say what you wanted to say. Okay, fair enough. Then I should be able to go find some syntactic grammatical parallels in order to validate it. So that's part of the validation process of the exegesis. And John, right in 1 John, there are several of them. In fact, that word, genetai, or the variant of genao, occurs multiple times within John, 1 John there. So I don't even need to go outside of 1 John to find it. That's always very handy. It's always good if you can find the same author, like if I can go to John's Gospel or even John's Letters or even the book of Revelation and have the same author, that's, that's sort of helpful. But here is from 2.29. All the doing, the righteousness, from him have been born. Okay? So you can see the change. Instead of pasapestuon, it's on," both participles, but they're different words. All the believing all the doing, and then in uh, four seven, pasha agapon ek tou theou gignetai. All the loving from the God have been born and know the God. Okay, so those are just some parallels. Now I think now you're going to see. I think the interpretive power between in doing this. If somebody were to say to me, "Well, what what do I have to do to be?" born again, would you say to them, well, you need to become more loving, like it says there in four seven. If you just become loving, that has, that's going to then produce God looking down at you and saying, okay, I see how loving you are. You're, you're regenerate. Would you tell them that? Hopefully not, right? Um, that would raise a very interesting question. Okay, then how, if this is going to determine my new life, how loving do I have to be before God finally says, you know, okay, good. Boom. You're regenerate. Okay. You wouldn't say that. Or would you say, if you want to be born again, what you need to do is start doing more righteousness. Like it says in two twenty nine. do righteousness. Would you tell them that how righteous do I have to be? In other words, this, this would be a works righteousness system, right? Um, it, it wouldn't make any sense to tell them that based on the rest of the Bible unless you were wanting to set up a works righteousness system. So then we work our way back up. All the believing that Jesus is the Christ from God have been born. Okay. And there's, there's again a consistency in how that perfect tense is used in this, in this context. Okay. So there's just an example of, um, Finding syntactic grammatical parallels that support your contention that believing follows after regeneration. And you can also go to many other texts and build this doctrine from other, other texts of Scripture as well. Okay, And then uh, down at the bottom there, there's a quotation from um, Dan Wallace, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. The force of the perfect tense is simply that it describes an event that... Completed in the past, we are speaking of the perfect indicative here. Um, These verbs have time reference within the indicative mood, and this is a perfect indicative. Has results existing in the present time. In other words, in relation to the time of the speaker. The perfect may be used to emphasize the results or present state produced by a past action. Okay. In other words, perfect... When you hear that in the jargon of theology or the scripture, it means complete, okay? I think when the old, the King James of uh, is it Colossians 2, 8, Paul wants to convince the Colossian Christians, because they're Gentiles, and they're being told by these Judaizers that, hey, sure, you Gentiles can be saved, as long as you keep the Mosaic law and get circumcised. Yeah, Paul says, no, you are complete in Christ. And I think one of the uh, early King James said, you are perfect in Christ. Well, they understood how that was being used and said perfect, but as it as time goes by, perfect means something a little bit different to us, so they just say complete. So, But that's what it means. So it's it's completed past action, but it creates a continuing state or condition, okay, from the perspective of the speaker or the writer. So it it, it makes perfect sense then. And you look up there at those English translations. And so once you see that in tec- the text of Scripture, the, the exegete or the translator, his work isn't done. He has to ask another question. Is the speaker or the writer looking more at the past completed action, or is he looking more at the present condition that that action created? Okay. Now, it's not necessarily a right or wrong answer per se, but you can see the differences there. Like the King James, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So they probably were putting more stress on the present condition of being regenerate as opposed to the past action that brought that about. Okay, and that probably accounts for the way the different translations um, put the stress on it. And as you see, these more modern translations down at the bottom has been born of God, has been born of God. So it's more of a look at the past completed action. They're not denying that there's a there's a present state that exists, but they're actually probably putting a little more stress on the past completed action. Okay, which probably accounts for why those. English translations are somewhat different. Um, okay, so that that's uh, one of the values of going out and finding syntactic grammatical parallels. You can do this with all kinds of things in scripture, and it's it's very valuable uh, little exercise to do. Okay, you have any thoughts or questions on that? Um, well, early on they would have probably a Latin translation, but the common person, Jerome's, yeah, the common person would wouldn't get anywhere near the text. You would, here's all you would see in Latin. If you didn't understand Latin, you wouldn't know what he was saying. You wouldn't be anywhere near the Scriptures. So um, the Reformers reformed their hermeneutics, and therefore, all of a sudden, the Bible comes alive for them, and they can see these things. They, can, they would have spotted this. That is a, a part of Reformed soteriology, is the ordo salutis. And they they did quite a bit of work in that area to show from Scripture what comes first. So they, they were in the dark. They were in the dark. Um, they did not have access to Scripture. Um, if the Bible, the Bible was in the church, it was oftentimes chained to the pulpit, and people just were totally dependent on what they heard on uh, Sunday mornings in the Mass. The split. yeah, There was a split, yeah. I mean... Um, there was quite a bit of contention for quite a few years, and it kind of came to a head at um, the Synod of Dort, where they gathered together, and and finally uh, they were responding to a series of of um, of um, arguments against Calvinist theology by the Arminians, and um, and it's interesting Jacob Arminius was dead at that point in time so was Calvin but they still brought forth these these five arguments and then the synod of dort gathered together and answered them and that's how they actually came up with the five the five points because it was presented to them as a series of arguments but yeah i mean it, it the synod of dort pretty much settled that as far as some people are concerned but i, I mean it not not as far as armenians are concerned <laughs> You could you could argue from the Bible till you're blue in the face to many people and it doesn't make it make a bit of difference okay so and it's it still is a point of contention but um, there's a grammatical reason from the text as to why I think it's reasonable to say if not necessarily chronological at least logically as the way God deals with us by his spirit regeneration comes first and the starting place for for the for the Calvinists, of course, is the sovereignty of God over salvation over all things. But the starting point for them is total depravity. So when you understand total depravity, you understand man is totally incapable of reasoning toward God or or coming up with anything that's pleasing to God. And so if you say, well, he has to believe first, then you have to answer the question, then how? How does a person dead in their sins accomplish anything like that? There has to be a God does that work first. Chronologically, if you want to look at it that way, uh, before that person can uh, repent of their sins and turn to God. And even you can find places in scripture where it talks about faith is a gift of God and so is repentance. Okay. So they're, they're grace gifts of God. Okay. There's just an illustration of uh, how that can be done. Okay. Let's take a look at the questions on page 24. Oh, almost forgot. I wanted to illustrate this. Pasapastuon, all the believing. By the way, this is the Apostle John. That's also the phrase that that he uses elsewhere. He uses this little phrase in the famous, the world famous John three sixteen. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That pasapastuon, okay, all the believing. Now it's commonly translated whosoever. Which sounds kind of like an open circle, right? Whosoever, and yet when we look at this grammatically, believing there is a participle. Participles are, are um, verbal adjectives. They just they they just sort of sit there. They need help. All right. It's just a um, it's just an abstract con- concept. Okay, but in the Greek text, the minute that article is added. You can see it looks like a, a little O there. That's the word the, all the believing. The minute you add the article, that becomes a substantive. So now it's not just an abstract concept. It's a group of people, right? So that goes, goes from an abstract to a substantive. And so what I like to do, and I really like circles, I like to put a circle around that. So inside the circle, we have the believing All the the believing ones, right? Outside the circle are unbelieving. This is how I would illustrate if I had a marker board. And what else he says is all. How many of the believing? All the believing. So everybody within that circle is included. This is what I was trying to point out as far as that goes. All the believing that Jesus is the Christ from God have been born Okay, He doesn't segregate these into two different kinds of people like all of the males or all the females. Then we just have two, two sections there, maybe one's larger than the other, but still only two. There wouldn't be three or four or five. Just saying. So that's just an illustration of, of what that does to put that article in front of that word. It creates a substantive out of a, of a concept that simply, before that article gets there, um, is um, an abstract concept. Now, there are other ways that, in the Greek language, that you can make something a substantive without the article. But if the article is there, it's a substantive as far as participles go. Okay, that's just some of the some of the other stuff that's there. Okay, so there's a little bit on the grammatical gap. Yeah, there's lots of them. Yeah, there's there's just lots of helps out there and. Uh, I, I know what you're saying, and and I'm I am certainly not an expert in biblical language by any stretch. I am a student. I always consider myself a student, um, so it, it's always kind of a you know how 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 much do we go into all this? But there are lots of helps out there. There's just tons of books that introductory books and things, and and um, you know Dan Wallace's grammar there. Now that is a intermediate grammar, but he also has another one that uh, he wrote that's it's not beginners because he's not a beginning Greek prof, but uh, there's just a lot of things out there that you can look at and get. And uh, I'm sure Dave probably has lots of resources too. A good basic interlinear would be an like interlinear. Stuff. Yeah. You would get the, sure. And another one, in fact, I was looking at it, uh, looking at it today. Uh, it's it's called Hans Parsing Guide. What these guys do, I don't. Boy, they got it. He took every verb in the New Testament and he parsed it as far as person, number, tense, mood, voice. So Han, H-A-N, parsing guide. Um, They wouldn't, that was verboten when I was in seminary. They wouldn't let you anywhere near any of that stuff because they wanted you to learn it. But uh, there's a tool where you can flip open to to a New Testament book and you can go down. All the verbs are listed and then he'll go right over and he'll tell you person, number, tense, mood, voice, and then the the uh, root word that it comes from. So there's all kinds of things like that out there. There's a lot of things online you can look at too. Um, um, yeah, there's there's just a ton of stuff out there. We should put together maybe a bibliography if anybody wants to pursue this further. You know, you never know who wants to next semester. Next semester. So oh, yeah. Doing you know, and tools. Okay, tools. Thinking, here's yeah. How to use this one. Here's how to, that might be just just helpful. Sure, yeah. We no, yeah. can pick out what, what's going to work best for us. We can do that. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Your question back there? Did you have a Your hand went up? Oh, uh, I was gonna... Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then you'll quickly learn where that, that statement came from. It's Greek to me. And it is, you know. And, and when you're studying it, starting out, your mind wants to have a rule that's like a dichotomous key. A binary thing. Whenever you see this, it's this, and whenever you see that, it's that. And there are rules like that in Greek. But then there's all these exceptions. And so for for every rule, there's there's not too many rules that I've seen where where that rule stands just without a bunch of exceptions. You know, so that complicates things even more. But uh, there's just a lot of really good helps out there. So yeah, it'd be good for us to put together a, a list of things um, to look at. Okay, anything else? Well, how about the top of page 24? In your own words, state how a person's view of Scripture affects how they do or don't pay attention to the details of the text. And you can tell we're looking at some little fine details here, okay? What'd you, uh, what'd you say for that? What'd you put? Here's what I put Dr. Zook, page 99 only grammatical interpretation fully honors the verbal inspiration of Scripture, if a person does not believe the Bible is verbally inspired, then it is inconsistent or at least strange for him to give much attention to the words of Scripture. I couldn't have said it any better than that, right? And so we're back to that, our basic understanding of the nature of Scripture. It is God's Word. And so then we, talk, and then we come back to, okay, but then what is the nature of the God who spoke and wrote his word, right? So ultimately, this boils down to a theological issue. The nature of God determines the nature of his word. And uh, you can go back and look at all those passages and verses and things that we saw that talk about the, the value of the word of God, what it is, and also what it does. God breathed and profitable. There's a profit to it. Okay, how about number two? In Romans 8.29, Paul says that God foreknew those who are called, in verse 28. A common view among Arminian interpreters is that God has foreknowledge of who will trust Him and thus calls them to salvation. How does the fact that proēgnō, from prognosco, to foreknow is an active verb and not a noun, impact your view of this verse? In other words, it is something God had done. It's an aorist indicative. That is simple past past tense, not just something God has. That is perfect knowledge. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation. I've had it many, many times with those folks. They'll look at that passage and they'll say, "Well, sure, God has foreknowledge. God has foreknowledge, and He looks down through history and He sees who will trust Him, and then He He elects them. Right? They become the elect." It's you got to listen. Listen close. There's a little sleight of hand going on here. When you hear them say, yeah, God has foreknowledge, goes, hold it. Time out. Time out on the field. Flag on the play. That's not what the text says. It does not say God has foreknowledge. But this is an example of how oftentimes we have a biblical truth and we know what it is. And it's true. But we see it, try to impose it on a text and it's not there even though it's true it's not there does god have all knowledge does god have perfect knowledge yeah he's omniscient right but that's not what that text says that's an active verb so the grammar is going to going to separate the armenians from those who aren't in those particular cases but this is very common you you point that out to him and even read it to him or show it to him you know whom he foreknew these he also okay and that great chain of uh, uh, the panoramic view of salvation is in view there. And they'll say, sure, God has foreknowledge. Uh, he looks down through his, goes, no, 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 okay? So you've got to listen carefully because it's, a, it's a, like a real sleight of hand. They're probably not even hearing or seeing what they're doing there. But the difference is the word that is used there is an active verb and not, not talking about uh, the knowledge of God, which obviously God has all knowledge. He has perfect knowledge. Okay, So you can come across sounding like you're arguing against the, the omniscience of God, if you say anything about that. But the detail of the one is a verb and one is, a, is not a verb has a lot to do with it. Okay. Also, I uh, have a little note here. Also in Matthew, Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, right? What he says is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Okay. And, uh, the word, the word is used 228 times in the New Testament. So you got to look at the context and see how it's actually used and what is it? Is it an active verb or is it a noun? Is it knowledge? Of course, God has knowledge. But when it says foreknown or in this case, new, the new there is used, gnosko, it's, it has relational value to it. It's commonly used of a man knowing his wife. It's not just know about you, it's, it's having some sort of an interaction with you and a relational knowledge. Okay, number three. In your translation of Psalm 150, count how many times the word praise is used. What would you come up with? Twelve? Thirteen? 13. I got 13 in the ESV. Okay. Now count in how many locations, ways, and with what he is to be praised. Fourteen, 14 times? Twelve. So at least twelve, maybe thirteen, probably depending on your translation. And even as the way it ends, in everything. So it's all encompassing, right? In everything. What kind of grammatical feature is the psalmist using there? Repetition? Yeah. Anything else come to mind that this might be? How about a doxology. A statement of praise of God? Glorifying God, I think it fits into that category. It ends the, it ends the, the the Book of Psalms. Okay. How about number four? A literal reading of the Greek text of Revelation nineteen twenty B, maintaining the original word order, because we did talk about word order back um, at the bottom of page twenty two literal method and syntax, and syntax is the relationship of the words to each other within a clause, word order can be used. Since these words are sort of, in a way, you can learn so much from the way that word is spelled, they become sort of self-contained, and which means that it frees up the Greek sentences to have a more flexible word order than English. This is a really hard one for me to wrap my head around. I've seen a list of sentences, and the words are all over the place but they're all, they all say the same thing in the Greek. You, you would translate them into English exactly the same way because the, the word order is much more flexible. And what you can do here, you can emphasize the word by putting it where the word living is. So literally, the word order, living, they were thrown the two to the lake of the fire burning with sulfur. How does the placement of the present active participle, living, in the emphatic position in the sentence, impact the meaning of the verse and your theology of eternal punishment. Also the fact that they were still there 1,000 years later and the future passive verb will be tormented is a third person they requiring the referent include all three persons thrown into the lake of fire. What are the theological implications there or doctrinal implications? There's groups out there historically, and even today they're out there, that say, well, see, God is too loving to ever cast anyone or anything into a lake of fire forever. Um, probably they, they died immediately when they went into the lake of fire. You know, They're not actually consciously punished for eternity, like it says. Except that the Greek grammar says different. Okay, that's the whole point of that. Your theology of eternal punishment um, is correct if you understand it to be eternal conscious punishment, and that's just a a grammatical uh, support for that. They don't lose consciousness. Yeah, it's they are living. They're thrown into the lake of fire. That is a present active participle. Present tense in the Greek has the idea of continuous habitual action. But since it's a state that they're in, they are in a state of being alive forever in the lake of fire. Okay? Okay, number five, read Luke twenty two twenty 24. What is significant about the context of this verse and that event? <clears throat> So we can kind of ask some of our developmental questions: um, Who, what, where, when? Where are they? Last supper, Last supper upper room. What's going to? What's about to happen? Betrayal, betrayal, and crucifixion the next day. He's about to make the ultimate sacrifice for these people. Okay, and um, what happens in verse 24? Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Okay. About what? They're in the upper room. He's just served them the last supper and washed their stinking feet with a servant's towel wrapped around him, giving them instructions about what's going to happen to him that he's not going to leave them or forsake them the holy spirit's going to come and these ga- these guys are arguing about which of them was to be regarded as the greatest the greatest what is wrong with that picture yeah um so so the context can help you understand the the seriousness of what's going on there and then if you looked at Matthew 20, 20, um, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and, and says, do me a favor. Make my boys, you know, one on your right, one on your left when you come into the kingdom. There's a high messianic expectation of the kingdom. The kingdom's, kingdom's close. And they knew it because there's the king. He's proven himself to be the fulfillment of Old Testament pro- prophecies concerning the king, but what they couldn't see was the cross. Okay? They, they could see the kingdom, but they had no concept of how that, how that kingdom was going to uh, come, come across. And remember when he said in Luke 24, we looked at that passage um, after the resurrection, he talked about, you should have seen in the prophets the suffering and the glory. Okay, the suffering and the glory. You go back and you look at those prophets, and that's the two things they talk about: the Messiah, suffering and glory. But what they couldn't see was the order of things; they had the timing wrong. But the their mother is asking that, and then the same thing in Mark ten thirty five: uh, James and John are uh, jockeying for positions in the coming kingdom, right? And even the other the one passage says that the the rest of the uh, disciples, the other ten, they got indignant. Because these guys were jockeying for position to see who would be first in the kingdom, and Jesus has to give them a lesson on servanthood once again. So um, they realized then after the crucifixion, which really took them by surprise, they were shocked at what happened. Even though he had talked to, talked to them about it, he had pr- tried to prepare them, um, and yet then it says, "Now they realized. Now they saw what he was talking about." After that, okay, but that had to take place first. Jockeying for position in the kingdom, and they were wanting to be the greatest. Okay, number six, if I read a contemporary meaning of a word back into the biblical text without regard to understanding how the biblical writer uses it, I might be guilty of plagiarism, communism, cronyism, anachronism, all four, or none. Anachronism, Anachronism, anachronos, another time, so I I see a word, and I n- know what it means to me in my time here and now, and I read that back into the text. It's easy to do, actually. It's pretty easy to do. Okay, any other uh, thoughts you might have or questions on that so far? Um, let's talk a little bit about word order. That's part of what this grammatical thing is and part of what we, what we saw there with that... Um, that verse from Revelation nineteen, living. So, just another illustration of word order. Since we were in John chapter four, look at John chapter four. This is again, this is the woman at the well. Jesus uh, shows up at the well, and the well is in across the border over in Gentile country, right? And it's called Jacob's well. Won't go into all of the various meanings of that's going on here, but speaking of words. Um, it's called translated well. In the narrative, the first two times that word is used, it's the word uh, pege, and that word means fountain, a fresh-flowing fountain. When the woman refers to it, uh, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep, okay? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, when she refers to that well, she uses a different word. It's called, she uses the word frear. Frear is a, is a pit, okay? And it's interesting. When you look at the, every other occurrence, uh, translation of that in, in, in the King James, they translate it pit, but here they translate it well. I think there was some theological bias there. Uh, but she uses a different word. And then when Jesus refers to it again, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring, a pegae. a pege fresh-flowing spring of water, welling up to eternal life. You don't see that in the English text, and I'm not sure exactly why they don't translate it that way, but those two were two different words, actually, in the text. But let's talk a little bit more about uh, word order here, because this is a good place to look for it. He has that encounter with the woman at the well, and um, here is John 17, okay? Uh, Answered the woman and said to him, Not I have husband, says to uh, her, Jesus, well, you say that a husband, not I have. So just the word-for-word English translation there. he He's talking to her about spiritual water. She's thinking he's talking about the water in this well. And uh, eventually he gets to a, a point where he says... Uh, if you knew who it was that spoke to you, you would be asking me for water. And finally, she says, okay, give it to me so I don't have to come here and draw water anymore. Now, if that would have been about 95% of the churches in this country, she would have had a deacon under each arm. They'd have had, they'd have drug her up front and had her baptized and back in her seat soaking wet, you know. She wouldn't have even known what was going on simply because she said, okay, give it to me. Jesus didn't do that. He says, go get your husband and bring him here. Well, why didn't he just say, hey, wow, well, I got one, great. Well, he knew that he was more concerned about her eternal destiny than her temporary uh, living situation, which she had to deal with her sin, and she hadn't done it yet. And so he says, go get your husband and bring him here. Answered the woman and said to him, and notice the word order, not I have husband. Okay, So in English, we smooth that out to something like, I don't have a husband says to her, Jesus, well, you said. So he commends her for her honesty, right? That, now watch what he does. Husband, not I have. He quotes her, but he takes the word husband and he puts it at the front of the sentence for emphasis, okay? She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, you got that right, lady. A husband I don't have when you say that, okay? So that's just an example of how the changing of the word order there puts the stress in the emphatic position on that word husband okay and then the very next thing in verse 18 oh by the way here's another little feature remember how often we saw the word legay is used in that passage um it's that word legay is present tense the one up there said that's an aorist tense but that legay is is a is a present tense And literally it says Jesus says to her, and this occurs multiple times. Grammarians call that an historic present tense. John really likes it. It occurs, he uses it a lot. And it's simply a stylistic way to use the present tense to tell a past time story because it makes it more vivid. Okay, He could say she said, she said, she said, but she says to him. So you can see how it sort of draws it up stylistically into the present time when you're telling the story. Very, very common in John. So the very next thing Jesus says after he commends her for her honesty and emphasizes the, the word husband, in the English it says, For you have had five husbands. So for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband and bear in mind the word anēr can be man or husband okay it's almost used interchangeably in scripture so look at that sentence right there we're talking about word order and putting emphasis or the emphatic position of a word anybody want to make an exegetical observation there not not an interpretation and not an application but just a kind of a cold observation Okay. Yeah, you went a little. You went a little farther than I was, but you're correct. Your observation: the first word in the sentence is five. Okay. What does that mean? Now, just just in that grammatical issue, you said it. Uh, that's what the emphasis was? There you go. The first word in the sentence. The reason I'm making an issue of this and kind of reining you back is because anybody want to argue that the word, first word in the sentence is five, not five? Can't, right? So when you start this interpretive process, observation, you're starting with something that actually is observable, it's objectively verifiable, you know? Like, that's a stop sign, right? Anybody want to argue with that? Well, nobody in their right mind. So so that's why I want to stress that, okay? Yeah, and Jesus is saying... Five. Now, move beyond observation to interpretation. What's going on here? What is he doing? He's stressing the word five. The okay. Yeah. Um, and she gets it loud and clear. The next thing she says is, sir, I do believe that you are a prophet. Okay. So there's an example of, of word order and how it is used. Five. Four. You have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, okay? Now, there are those in our generation who would say, wait a minute, come on, that's kind of intrusive, right? What's he trying to do, embarrass her? What what business is it of his, what her relationship is? Who cares, right? How would you answer that objection? Cornell? Cornell? Yeah, <laughs> she's going to come to that conclusion. This this man understood you, you can't tell from the text, but my suspicion is nobody but her knew about her past relationships. Could have been over, obviously, a period of years, maybe when she was a teenager, older. We don't know how old she is. And yet, I think she was the only one that knew how many men had been in her life. But he knows and he's calling her out on it. And uh, if somebody says, well, you know, that's kind of intrusive, right? Well, yeah, and he has the right to intrude in every aspect of our lives. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He's the creator God of the universe. He created people, and he created marriage, and he created relationships. He has the right to sit in judgment of all of it. And he also cares more about her eternal destiny than about the, the pilgrim back in the love shack, right? Um, he cares more about her eternal soul than her temporary uh, relationship, and he wants her to understand that, okay? So they're, they're simply from the way the sentence is structured, you can get an idea of what's going on in the text there, okay? Word order, okay? Any other thoughts or questions you might have on that? And by the way, I think, yeah, not that I know of. Um, or is it, no, I just, she's had a succession of men, and and it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if she was married all those times. This one, not your husband. Peek a boo, right? I mean he just he basically walks into her house, walks into her living room and into her bedroom, and takes the covers right off the bed and shines a big flashlight on it and says, I invented marriage, and this isn't it. Okay? Um, he's wanting her to to be confronted with her sin. And he's not going to just let her, well, give me the water. I'll take it. Yeah. So I don't have have to come here to draw water anymore. That's what she says. He wants her to get down to the spiritual issue here. She needs a Savior. And uh, I think we talked a little bit last time about her progressive illumination, right? She's seeing him progressively for who he truly is. And at that point in time, she says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, yeah, she's she's right about that. I don't think that's, that's irrelevant, I think, to her situation at that point in time. Whoever that is back in the love shack, that is not your husband. And he knows it. And now she knows he knows it. So I think that's what's going on here. Okay? But there again, my, my point is, so much of this you can tell from the grammar of the sentence, the way the sentence are put together, what's going on here. And then and then even as it moves down through, she takes, she leaves the water pot. That's a little detail. She leaves the water jug and goes back into the town to tell the people, This man has told me about my life. You know, she's and then the Samaritans come out and they're saved. And the punchline of it is the Samaritan says, and they believe in Jesus. And then he says, now I know that you are the Savior of the world. He doesn't say Savior of the Samaritans, Savior of the world. And that is a usage of the word world there that I think in John's gospel and elsewhere means beyond the Jews, beyond the Jews. He wouldn't, if it means, uh, remember we talk about all, all, every world. Um, The movement of the gospel from Jew to the Gentiles to the world Going out is a major theme in the New Testament. It's a gigantic theme in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. All the families of the earth, all the families of the world will be blessed through you. Okay, so that's that's quite a review. I kind of figured it, back when I put this together, I kind of debated on maybe doing two sessions on uh, grammar, but we kind of just did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, this week we're moving into the what we're going to call the literary gap, after we've exhausted everything as far as the grammatical gap. (laughs) Actually, we just touched the surface. But at the top of page 25, this is another good work here. Uh, Andreas Kostenberger and Richard Allen Fuhrer wrote a book, fairly recently too. It's called Inductive Bible Study, and they use the same three um, parts of the process that we do: observation, interpretation, application, through the lenses of history, literature, and theology. Okay, so I have that book. It's pretty good. It's a great book. It's kind of a different angle on it, but they're using basically the same uh, the same process there. Because the Bible was written by so many authors over such a long period of time, reflecting such a variety in purpose and origin, the outcome is a text representing a dozen or so primary genres and many more subgenres. Okay, So we're just talking about the kind of literature that it is. And you obviously know there's all different kinds. Um, But we can take this methodology, this literal interpretive method, And we can apply it to every single genre exactly the same way, even though we recognize there's a difference between wisdom literature and narrative literature and so on. And here's just a list of things, and uh, pretty much directly out of uh, the reading. There's uh, the legal genre, okay? Now, this was one that was new on me. I had to look this one up. Um, that's divided up into apodictic, <clears throat> Direct commands or prohibitions, okay? Now, we might think of the Decalogue, right? But also, causistic, case-by-case, legal literature. And then, of course, narrative, as it just sort of moves you through a story. And poetry, obviously, and the different kinds of uh, poetry. uh, The lines are in parallel there. It's going to be somewhat different than what we might think is poetry, but uh, still fits the genre of poetry. And then obviously the wisdom literature, Proverbs and so on. Gospel accounts, the biography of of the life, person, and work of Christ that we know of as the four Gospels. And then there's uh, writing that we could call logical, expository, or doctrine, sometimes didactic it's called, or hortatory, which an application is being made in some of that literature. <clears throat> and, of course, prophetic predictions with exhortations to respond, repentance, joy, etc. Prophetic literature that some of it has already been fulfilled. Okay, the, All of the prophecies concerning the first advent of Christ are fulfilled. That gives us a model to look at how future prophecies about his second coming will be fulfilled. I would think they were going to be fulfilled in the same way. Um so we have then prophetic that's been fulfilled but then we also have prophetic that's called eschatology the last things that reach way out into the future okay now here's a real key <clears throat> observing the genre never replaces or displaces or overrides the historical grammatical method we don't have you don't have to change your methodology when you approach these different kinds of genres. You can just use that same um, interpretive principles. And uh, a couple of quotes from Dr. Robert L. Thomas. Dave mentioned him last time. Just a tremendous New Testament scholar, uh, very instrumental in producing the New American Standard Bible. And um, he refers to this phenomenon as genre override. And uh, I'll let you read that first quote on your own. He talks about normal principles of interpretation can be maintained. But then concerning the book of Revelation, that second quote at the bottom, and by the way, he wrote, in my opinion, the very best exegetical commentary on Revelation. It's a two-volume work. Um, just really, really good. And he maintains the same interpretive principles for the book of Revelation that he would any place else. He says, a relatively new field of specialized New Testament study is a careful examination of the literary genre or style of different books. Revelation has often been classified as a kind of literature called apocalyptic. But the category of prophetic is probably a better classification for the book. Why? The book calls itself a prophecy in chapter 1, verse 3. Okay. If the genre were primarily apocalyptic, this might constitute a basis for interpreting the book in a non-literal way. The preterist, tradition historical, continuous historical, and idealist, now these are all different approaches to interpreting the book of Revelation, approaches the book to the book have at times spiritualized the book in accord with the assumption that its apocalyptic style makes it different from other books. If the book is basically prophetic, however, only a literal interpretation will suffice. The visual means through which God communicated the revelation to John lend themselves to literal interpretation by the book's readers with allowances for normal figures of speech. And we've said that repeatedly, but it's worth repeating. Just because we say we interpret the Bible literally, that does not mean that we Um, are woodenly literal, and oftentimes people that are in my position or yours get mocked. Oh, you think Jesus, when he said, I am the door to the sheepfold, you think he was a literal door? No, of course not. But we understand the literal truth behind that, even though he uses a figure of speech. And all the rest of the figures of speech, because the Bible is very rich in different kinds of figures of speech. But that is never an excuse to spiritualize or allegorize the text of scripture okay and uh he's he's basically reacting in that book that he wrote um wrote that book in 2002 so it's it's only little little more than 20 years old at this point so he's reacting to uh something that came along in evangelical circles that really um threatened it, basically it was a new way of interpreting scripture Okay. And uh, Dr. Thomas is responding to that there. Okay, But the book of Revelation can be interpreted exactly the same way you would interpret anything else. And it doesn't work to, to say, oh, that's apocalyptic literature. We can alter our the way we interpret that book. It's so symbolic, they often say. Symbolic. Well, yes, it is very symbolic, but the symbols are either explained within the text itself or they can be known from someplace else in the Old Testament. This is written by the Apostle John, he was the apostle to the circumcised or to the Jews. He's assuming that his readers have a very good working understanding of the Old Testament because they're, they're Jewish people. And so um, just because it was written at the end of the first century doesn't mean that uh, you sort of have to approach it in a totally different way. He's assuming the knowledge that should be there uh, from your understanding of the Old Testament. And uh, so... Um, that's a very good, uh, I think, very good advice for how we approach the whole Bible, even though there's all these different genres or literary styles, <clears throat> uh, and particularly the book of Revelation, okay? Well, then on the top of page 26, the literal method and structure. We'll spend a lot of time on this tonight. Uh, there's a question or two there in in your, uh, in, for next week's questions. A little, you can fill in the blanks. But observing the larger structure helps us understand the meaning. Classic case, Acts 1.8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Now, we might call this a, uh, a concentric circle type of structure. Okay, Starts in Jerusalem. And then it moves to Judea, Samaria, outermost parts of the earth. Now, even though on a map those places are more in a line, but uh, you can still see how it ends up the earth. So there's sort of a circular expansion there. That's just simply from the way the words um, are are put together by the Lord. Also, another way is progress reports. Um, The book of Acts has several progress reports. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That's Acts 6-7. And then each one of those references there is another progress report. And you follow those progress reports, it basically follows that um, Acts 1-8 statement as the gospel moves out okay, into the world. So it's, <clears throat> it's as if God says, here's what I'm going to do. And here's the progress reports to prove that uh, what I said I was going to do, I'm going to do, okay? Because he said, you will be my witnesses. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And so the progress reports vindicate God and vindicate God's um, uh, power to do what he said he was going to do. Well, another structure, uh, it's called a chiastic structure. Um, And this one I think is kind of interesting. I first heard this from Dr. Richard Mayhew, And I can't remember where I heard it. I think it was a, a message he gave. Did you ever hear this from him? He, took the, he, he basically took the entire Bible and um, saw a chiastic structure. Now, the Greek letter chi looks like an X. Okay, And uh, basically, it's an inverse parallel. We're going to be talking about that more next time. It's an inverse parallel. But what, what he saw, he says, eschatology, last things, recapitulates protology, first things, in reverse order. In other words, when you start reading the Bible, um, what you see in Genesis 1 and 2, you have creation. There's no sin, right? First two chapters. But then chapter 3, sin comes in. But then as you move through the Bible, the cross is the, the middle, the focal point, and then you move toward the end of the Bible until you get to Revelation 20, and then sin goes out. And then the last two chapters, new creation, there's no sin. So in the first two chapters of the Bible, there's no sin. The last two chapters of the Bible, there's no sin. And it moves towards the center. And um, he also comments that uh, there is no place it, on the right-hand side there for a massive gap of time, like billions and billions of years for an evolutionary process to take place. Therefore, you can't, it's not going to be in the uh, creation story at all. That's a Pretty prominent issue nowadays. So there's a, a structure. And then there's smaller structures. I'll let you guys read them on their own. Parallel, ring, and then the chiasm, or chiasm, which we just looked at. All the way down through, um, there's an ascending structure, 1 John. Now there's a really excellent chart in your reading in Zuck's page 141, where he actually gives you a chart showing that ascending uh, uh, structure in the text and a descending structure, and then repetition, and then conditions. So there's conditional clauses. We looked at one last time. Remember John 8.31? Okay, if. It's an if-then, and uh, those conditional statements are also categorized. That particular one happens to be a third-class condition where it's in the mind of the writer or the speaker, it's unlikely to be true, okay? Um, when Paul said, um, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us, okay? That's a first-class condition. That in the mind of the writer, that's very highly likely to be true. So that's, that's just one more way the structure helps us understand the meaning of the text, okay? So I think... There's an example on page 27 of a chiastic structure from Mark 2:27. Jesus taught this way, um, very typical rabbinic way of teaching, and what it did, it gave the listener a a, um, a spatial structure to to memorize. Remember, they didn't have their own copy of, of scripture. Um, but if they're going to meditate on the Word of God, they had to be able to memorize it and remember it somehow. So these different structures help them memorize it. They, make it. they make the Bible portable to be able to think through it. And so this is an example of an inverse parallel. Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, my favorite illustration of this simple illustration, because I'm a simple guy, is your hands. Okay? Your hands are a mirror image, right? Are they not? So the first part of that statement, if you read from, from your perspective, the Sabbath was made for man, and then the, the contrastive term is in the center. That's the hinge point, not man for the Sabbath. So you see man is in the center, okay? It moves to the center. But when you take those two and you place them in parallel, you have an inverse relationship. So if you were to draw a line between my thumbs and my little fingers, you would have that X or key, the Greek letter key, uh, structure there. It's an inverse parallel. Okay, And when you would think about that back then, you would have a sort of a structure in your mind to help you remember what it said and make it more portable. Okay, It's one of the... One of the reasons that it was done that. Another little feature of that is, you notice how at the bo- in that that second section there, where I have the blue X, I supplied was made in the lower the lower uh, part of that. That is left out of that second s- uh, phrase. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Okay. So I supplied it there because it's left out. That, that's a particular feature of the text. It's called an elision or a deletion, an elided word or an elided phrase. Okay? And it relies on the parallel antecedent verb. Now, you find this in, in many, many passages in Scripture. We also do it in our own language, very simply, because it, languages tend to contract, and so it avoids repetition if you do that. OK, um, we do this every time we talk, whenever we speak, every time we communicate. Did you catch it? Just did it twice. We do this. There's the verb every time we talk. And then I didn't need to. I didn't need to say we do this whenever we speak. We do this whenever we communicate, because your mind picks up on the parallel antecedent verb. OK, and you see this. You see this all through Scripture um and it also can create an issue because the translators have to supply the missing word or words and sometimes they supply words that maybe are not the parallel antecedent verb they make up their own and put them in the text there's a few examples of that okay so that's a chiastic structure and there's an example of that at the bottom from genesis 6:11 and i just tried to structure it as it is in a uh, chiastic structure so you can see the like features of it at the very top there. A, God declares he will destroy the earth. Now go back down to the bottom, A prime. God declares he will never destroy the earth with water. Okay, and you can just work your way right through those. Into the center, the focal point is that, the very center, that's F, God remembers Noah, 8, one in that passage, okay? So we tend to see things sort of in a linear thought process. But these chiastic structures go from the outside to the inside. So it's a totally different structure. Okay? And I gave you one there to fill in the blanks there over on page 28 when you get around to it. Okay, any thoughts or questions you might have about that? The Bible is really rich in all these different kinds of structures and figures of speech, and uh, would have helped these people who did not have a copy of the text. I mean, we have so much, and it's uh, it would have helped them memorize it. And uh, this is why the stress in the Old Testament and even in the New is on hearing, hear, listen, hear. You know, faith comes from hearing a speech about Christ. It says so. Yeah, ask me that again. I don't think it was necessarily meant to be read backwards. They would have read it right through, but they would have understood the structure to be in that chaotic structure. And it would have just simply created a a, a mental image for them to make it easier to remember. A teaching device, device, yeah. Portability. Illustrations, you know. When you preach or teach or you talk to somebody about the gospel, it's good to have a good illustration, you know, that, that illustrates the truth, gives them something portable to think about. Jesus taught that way. Consider the lilies of the field, you know. And there they were right there in front of them. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenay Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenay Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.